Uh, as Danny mentioned, today we're going to begin a short series on the book of Colossians uh, titled Christ is Everything. Let's see how that looks up on the screen. Beautiful. Uh, and when we say something is everything, it can mean a lot of things, as in OMG, that outfit you're wearing is everything, um, or this new song or viral video is everything right now, or when you say to someone special, you're everything to me. It can mean something is all-encompassing or of utmost importance or just really good, right, and amazing or extraordinary. And in the context of this sermon series, I kind of mean all of it. If I had to summarize the message of Colossians in three words, it would simply be, Christ is everything. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be doing a deep dive, well, as much of a deep dive as you can in four weeks, uh, and we're going to go through most of Colossians, except for the last chapter, which is mostly just a bunch of greetings from Paul to a bunch of people. You might be wondering, why are those there? Because as you might know, Colossians was originally a letter. And speaking of letters, uh, my wife's name uh, is Alice, and uh, we just celebrated, actually, we're almost about to celebrate 25 years of marriage. Um, but we met as freshmen uh, in college back in the early 90s when the internet had just started existing. I know some of you have to process that a little bit, right? Take your time. And, and around this time, a few people had cell phones uh, or even email. And so some of you might be wondering how we even communicated at all, right? Uh, well, before apps and messaging, there was something called the handwritten note, okay, uh, made of actual paper, okay? Uh, just for my own research, how many of you wrote handwritten notes to each other in school? Okay, a few of you. All right, maybe I'm not such a dinosaur, right? Um, so in high school, we used to write these letters, and sometimes we would fold them into uh, elaborate shapes to pass them to one another. And as a college freshman, handwritten letters were an integral part of my strategy to win Alice over. And so I want you to imagine, right, that you're walking around a, uh, at a yard sale, and you find a book, and in it, you open it up, and suddenly a, a letter falls out. Right? And you find one of these letters that I wrote to Alice. And you wouldn't know where it came from, who wrote it, or who they wrote it to. But you might be able to pick up some context clues that this was written from one college student to another. And that this was written in the pre-internet era. Uh, and you might be able to surmise that these two were just getting acquainted and that the letter was written by a boy for the purpose of winning the affections of a girl. And you might be wondering, why, why are you telling us this? The reason I'm sharing this is we often forget that many books of the Bible, like Colossians, are letters. They didn't just drop out of the sky out of nowhere. They were written by someone to specific people in a specific time and place, usually for a specific reason. And so when we read these letters, we need to do a little detective work to figure out who is writing to whom and why. And so the book of Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the believers living in the city of Colossae. And we're not going to understand what Paul is talking about unless we understand some of the context. 
And that's just a basic principle that we should be applying to all of our scripture reading. And so here is what you need to know about Colossians. At the time of this letter, the church in Colossae was newly planted and young in their faith. And it's important to note that Paul had never been there before. He'd never been to Colossae. And this church was planted by Paul's partner. And his name was Epaphras. And Epaphras had been filling Paul in about what's been going on in the church since it began. And most scholars agree that what was going on is that there were most likely false teachers infiltrating this vulnerable church with their fancy rhetoric and elaborate spiritual teachings. And they were sowing division and creating confusion and leading some of these young believers astray. And so Epaphras visits Paul, who was in prison at the time, asking for help. And this letter is Paul's response. Okay? And so how do these false teachers operate? I'm sure some of you know, I'm sure you know someone who's really passionate about a subject that they have a lot of knowledge about, right? You know, like a nerd, right? And I have a friend who... Uh, really loves coffee, but also knows a lot about coffee. He roasts his own beans, and one time he was telling me about all the, all the ki kinds of beans he uses and where he gets them and how he roasts them and stores them and all the different methods of preparation he's tried and on and on, and I, I'm just like, I just like coffee. Right? Whenever anyone speaks authoritatively about something that we don't know much about, it can be overwhelming, right? Maybe even intimidating. And so these false teachers in Colossae were talking about complex religious rules and traditions, and they were claiming to have special knowledge and spiritual power. And the young Colossian Christians were probably like, we just like Jesus. And so according to scholars, it's likely that these teachers taught that there was secret wisdom, only accessible to the spiritually enlightened, and that there was a special power only a few truly spiritual people could have. Of course, they were those people. And they would have preyed on the young Colossian believers who may have already felt insecure about their faith, right? After all, remember that they didn't hear the gospel from the head honcho, Paul. Right? They heard it from Epaphras, Paul's sidekick. So they may have wondered, how do we know we got the real gospel? How do we know Epaphras didn't leave something out? So when these teachers arrive, flexing their fancy theological words or elaborate explanations, it's easy to see why the Colossians would have been easily swayed or made to feel inferior. Oh, you only heard about Jesus from Epaphras. Well, did he tell you about the secret stuff? The special knowledge and wisdom? No? Well, what about the hidden mysteries of God? Did he tell you about the super secret spiritual pathway to enlightenment? No? Oh. I thought you were real Christians. 
Colossians already had Jesus. But they were now being told that in order to be true followers of Jesus, they would have to add on. Uh, add on a bunch of things like elaborate traditions or you know, complex rules and regulations or mystical experiences that would take them to the next level. And so ultimately, instead of trusting in the union they already had in Christ, they would be tricked into following these so-called spiritual leaders who were really just using and manipulating the young believers for their own personal gain. Okay? Can you think of any examples of how this might still be going on today? Of course you can. Right? Uh, there's a whole industry of celebrity Christian leaders and spiritual gurus offering shortcuts or, or special secret knowledge or wisdom or spiritual power or special insights into the mysteries of God and all selling different ways to level up and become superior Christians or the right kind of Christian. It sounds appealing, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be great if I had some kind of special spiritual power or insight that you could just, boom, turn all of you into super Christians? But Paul warns the Colossians to not be deceived by fine-sounding arguments, and not to be taken captive by their hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the things of this world rather than on Christ. Paul's saying it might sound impressive, but it's actually just immature. So the Colossians may have had the same impulse that many of us have, you know, to search for the next new thing, or to compare ourselves to one another, to to worry about our spiritual status. Or we might be constantly looking for something to rejuvenate our faith. You know, if, if only I can just pray more, or read the Bible more, or serve more, or experience the Holy Spirit more. Or if only I can find the right pastor, or follow the right spiritual influencer. And social media, you know, has a tendency to bombard us with messages, you know, about our not-enoughness. You know, five issues every Christian should be concerned about right now. Or ten tips to change your prayer life forever. Right? Number six will blow your mind. Have you ever felt spiritually inadequate or insecure about your faith? Like what you have, what you have done, or what you know isn't enough. I have. Or maybe you're new to church, or maybe you haven't been in a while, and you feel a little insecure about all the stuff you have to learn about the Bible and theology and about how to worship and, and sing and pray and all the other weird things that Christians do and say. And if you've ever felt any of these things, then you might understand a little bit of what these believers in Colossians may have been feeling. And so now that we understand some of the context, what Paul writes in his letter is going to make a lot more sense. 
It might be helpful to follow along in your Bibles if you have one handy or you can just look, look it up on your phone. Uh, and we're going to be going through chapter 1. So it's a lot of setup, but we're going to dive in here. And so right off the bat, what would you think is Paul's first priority when he's writing to this Colossian church who are feeling insecure and inadequate? What would you write? His first priority is to reassure them, of course. And so in Colossians 1.4, he says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. I want you to imagine meeting someone you really respect and admire and for the first time. And, and he or she says, oh, I've heard of you. How would that make you feel? And so these Colossians may have thought, whoa, Paul's heard of us. Right? And as Paul continues... I want you to pay attention to the words that he uses, that he chooses very intentionally. He talks about the hope they've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has already come to them. If the Colossians were wondering if they were missing something, Paul's message is loud and clear. Don't worry. You've already heard the true message of the gospel when it first came to you. And he continues in verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. He's saying, the gospel you heard is the very same gospel being preached and bearing fruit throughout the whole world. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. And, listen again, truly understood God's grace. He's saying, don't worry. You got it right the first time. And then he says, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, the, 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 the apostles. And this is more than a shout out, right? He's backing up Epaphras. He's saying, don't worry. Epaphras is the real deal. So you see how a little bit of context really helps us understand what's going on in this, in this letter. And, and remember, these teachers were promising special wisdom and knowledge and power and spiritual vitality to the Colossians. And interestingly, starting in verse 9, Paul starts to sound just like them. I want you to listen to what he says. He says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Whoa. Right? Through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father. And he, and he goes on. Right? I mean, this is it. This, this is like expert level like Jedi master stuff, right? And the Colossians are probably at the edge of their seats. Finally, that's right, we knew it. That's what we're talking about. We're ready. We're ready for the good stuff. Give it to us. And this is what we want too, isn't it? We want knowledge and wisdom and understanding. We want to bear fruit in our lives. We want spiritual power. We want endurance and patience and joy in our lives. But here's a twist. Unlike the false teachers... Paul doesn't give them more things to do or more things to learn 
or any spiritual secrets at all. Paul gives them something they already have. Instead of taking them to the next level, he points them back to the beginning. Back to basics. He gives them Jesus. But he gives them a picture of Jesus that is so expansive and all-encompassing, it changes everything. Can we put the next slide up? Is that legible to everyone? Okay, I'm getting a few nods. Can we read this aloud together? Okay, I'll lead us. But I think this is a good practice to hear these words said aloud. It's kind of like a, a praise hymn. Okay, ready? All together? You with me? The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Okay, by the way, every time you see the word all, I want you to emphasize it, okay? For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. That is dense. Right? Paul gives us this picture of Jesus that fills up the entire frame and spills out beyond its edges. It is totally unique in its totality. It's cosmic Grandness, right? This is cosmic Christ stuff. Jesus is everything. He is the beginning and the end and everything in between. And Paul says this. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Think about that. Not just a part, not just a little, but the fullness of God dwelling in this ordinary-looking man from Nazareth. And so the mind-blowing mystery is that God became flesh. And he ate with sinners. He healed the sick. And he pro proclaimed the, f the good news of God's love for all people. Jesus is the fullness of God in human form walking among us. Right? Emmanuel, God with us. That means everything we need to know about God can be found in Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. It puts all of our spiritual searching and striving to rest because Christ came and Christ is everything. And Paul says something extremely important in verse 23. He urges the Colossians, continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. In other words, remember how you believed and put your faith in Jesus. That's it. Just keep doing that. 
Continue in that faith. Established and firm. Do not move from it. We don't move beyond Jesus. We only abide in him as he abides in us. And Jesus said that's how we're going to bear fruit. So it doesn't matter if you're a brand new believer or if you've been a saint for 50 years. Christ is everything. And there is no scarcity in Christ, only abundance. Everyone has the same direct access to God. There's no paywall, no hierarchy, no middleman needed. And I'm sorry to say that I don't have any more Jesus than you do. And there's no such thing as advanced Christianity. It's not a competition. Because according to the passage we just read together, Christ is everything. Christ is everywhere and in everyone. If you're feeling spiritually dry or discouraged or inadequate, I want you to hear this. It is not because you don't have enough Jesus in your life. It's not because you don't have enough Jesus. That's impossible. Hear the good news. Jesus is already in you and with you and all around you. And Jesus is for you and he loves you no matter what. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the good news. That's grace, right? So what is the problem? You probably forgot. You forgot that Christ is already in you, with you, and all around you. Right here, right now, and always will be. Or maybe you forgot that Christ is everything. Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. And so you started adding things on to the finished work of Christ. Or maybe you didn't forget but just never knew. Maybe you've been told that God is distant and looking down on you with judgment. Or that you're not good enough or too sinful or unworthy for God to come near to you or be on your side. These are all lies. Thomas Keating, who's a modern contemplative teacher, quotes St. Teresa of Avila. And he says this, all difficulties in prayer can be traced to one cause, praying as if God were absent. This sense that God is far away is the conviction that we bring with us from early childhood and apply to everyday life and to our lives in general. And it only gets stronger as we grow up unless we are touched by the gospel and begin the spiritual journey. And this journey is a process of dismantling the monumental illusion that God is distant or absent. When we forget that we are already in God and God is in us, then it makes us vulnerable, susceptible to control and manipulation. And some of us are going to go through all these extra motions, trying to reach and find and make ourselves worthy of God. That's not the gospel. Right? We're going to make our spiritual life about how often we pray or, or do our devotions or read our Bibles or make it about how, how well we obey the rules or how often we feel a spiritual high 
or make it about gaining more head knowledge and spiritual theological insight. And none of these things are bad, right? A lot of them can be good and beneficial. They're just not Jesus. Christ is everything. Not your efforts, not your failures. There is a big difference between doing these things so that God will be with us. God, will you just please come, please be with me. And having the freedom to do all these things because God is already with us. You can't earn what you already have, right? There's another quote in Richard Rohr's book on contemplative, contemplative prayer that has been deeply impactful for me. I want to read it for you. My starting point is that we're already there. We cannot attain the presence of God because we are already totally in the presence of God, right? That's what Colossians 1 is about. What's absent is awareness. Little do we realize that God is maintaining us. God is maintaining you in existence with every breath we take. As we take another, it means that God is choosing us now and now and now. We have nothing to attain or even learn. We do, however, need to unlearn some things. That's been a part of my journey as a Christian. I've added on so many things, and whenever, whenever I've struggled spiritually, it almost always has to do with all the things, all the extra pressures and expectations I've added on to my relationship with Jesus. Guilt or shame that bogged me down. Unmet expectations that discouraged me. Or my constant busyness in the name of Jesus. And whenever I think back to the times when I've experienced spiritual renewal and growth, it's almost always been about going back to basics. Remembering my first love. It has a lot more to do with shedding all the extra baggage I've, I've added on than doing more and learning more and, and thinking more and feeling more. It's coming back to simple faith, right? Paul's exhortation to the Colossians is simply to remember. Remember where they first started. And his word to them is to continue in their faith. Established and firm, not moving from the hope held out in the gospel. And so, in closing, I want to ask you a few questions. And you can close your eyes and meditate on these questions, or you can write down whatever comes to mind on paper or in a note on your phone, whatever works best for you. So you can, I like, you know, response to be somewhat active, or you can just be still and listen and contemplate. I want to ask you, what are the lies about God or distorted images of God living in your brain? What do you need to unlearn?
What are the lies about God or distorted images living in your brain? What do you need to unlearn? What do you need to name and confront? Another question. What do you need to remember? If you consider yourself a Christian, go back to the beginning. Think back to a time, doesn't have to be the first time, but a time that comes to mind, when you put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you need to remember your first love. Is there anything you've forgotten that you need to recall and reclaim right now? At some point, maybe you believe that no matter who you are or what you did or didn't do, you believed that Jesus is enough. Guess what? He still is. Maybe you believe that Jesus loved you unconditionally. Guess what? He still does. Maybe you believe God would be with you always. And guess what? It's true. God will never leave you. So you don't have to feel insecure or inadequate or threatened by anything. Because Christ is everything. Let's take another minute or so to continue writing or sitting in silence. In a few moments, we'll continue in our worship.